Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Oret Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The story of Africa's rapid population growth has typically focused on well-known megacities. But urbanization on the continent is beginning to take a slightly different shape. Say hello to small-town Africa. And you might know a lot about sport. You might have the gift of the gab. But that's not all it takes to be a brilliant commentator. We pay tribute to the underrated heroes of broadcast sports. But first. Last night, the Manhattan District Attorney indicted Donald Trump. And for the first time in history, a former American president now faces arrest. He's charged with breaking campaign finance and accounting rules in the run-up to the 2016 election. Accusations he firmly denies. In a statement... Mr. Trump called the indictment political persecution and election interference at the highest level in history. He went on to describe himself as a completely innocent person. Mr. Trump's supporters, who gathered outside his Mar-a-Lago home, seemed to agree. What they're doing to him right now is only strengthening his base. I'm, I'm going to vote for President Trump. Give me nothing. I'm here to defend and protect him because he's standing in front for us. How dare they pull this? You know what? It's going to give him the presidency. Just watch. For almost any other politician, an indictment might signal the end of a political career. But for Mr. Trump, it may actually help him win the Republican primary by firing up his most fervent supporters. For his opponents, though, this might not be the most straightforward way to hold Mr. Trump to account. Nearly two weeks ago, Donald Trump announced on his social media platform, Truth Social, that he was going to be arrested on charges by the Manhattan DA. And then nothing happened. John Priddo is The Economist's US editor and presents Checks and Balance, a podcast on American politics. And... Yesterday, last night, we got the news here in New York that a grand jury had indeed decided to indict the previous president on charges brought by the Manhattan DA. This is historic. It'll be the first time that a sitting president or former president has been indicted. John, how did we get here? What is the legal basis of this case? 
It's a bit complicated. So just before the 2016 election, Michael Cohen, who was Donald Trump's lawyer, longtime lawyer, paid $130,000 out of his own pocket to Stephanie Clifford, who's an actress in pornographic films, or was an actress in pornographic films, better known as Stormy Daniels. And the payment was allegedly in exchange for her keeping quiet about a fling that she had with Donald Trump. I think tabloids would call it a tryst, which is a good word here, about a decade earlier. Now, Mr. Cohen was then reimbursed by Donald Trump, and the accusation is twofold. Number one, Mr. Trump falsified his business records because that payment was described as a legal expense. And number two, that this was a breach of campaign finance law because effectively the hush money payment is akin to a campaign contribution, which had a material effect on the outcome of the 2016 election. You can donate to your own campaign under American campaign finance law, but it has to be disclosed. And Mr. Trump denies all wrongdoing. And beyond the denial, what else has he said? Before the indictment by the grand jury came down, Mr. Trump has already called the Manhattan DA an animal. The Biden regime's weaponization of law enforcement against their political opponent is something straight out of the Stalinist Russian horror show. And you know, we go and said that this whole thing is a witch hunt. That's a line that has been, you know, widely repeated by senior Republicans who see this prosecution as partisan, as politics by other means. And polling suggests that Republican voters, the kind of voters who will vote in the next Republican primary, share that view. Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, was elected on a fairly progressive platform, but he's not considered to be a sort of party hack. And in fact, last year, a couple of lawyers who'd been working in his office resigned, citing Mr. Bragg's reluctance to bring a case against Donald Trump on another charge. Of course, one of the strange things here and one of the real difficulties to my mind in America's legal system is Mr. Bragg is elected as a Democrat. Um, he is you know, charged with enforcing the law and bringing prosecutions without favouring one party over the other. But it's, of course, you know, extremely easy for Donald Trump to paint this as a prosecution brought by a Democrat, because in fact it is. So, John, what's next? Well, a lot of the things that you'd expect to happen when somebody is arrested in America. So the former president will be fingerprinted, photographed. He might even be handcuffed. He'll be read his Miranda rights. It might take a couple of days for this to happen, or it might not happen in the public eye. He might turn himself in voluntarily. From the point of view of law enforcement officials, you know, this is something that they would want to handle very delicately because of the potential for protests, for even violence on the part of some of the former president's supporters who'll be feeling very aggrieved. As for the trial, that could take a long time. And if there is a conviction that will be appealed, that appeal would take a long time, could go to higher courts. You know, all of this will play out over the course of the 2024 campaign. So you'll have you know, the quadrennial political drama in America of a presidential campaign running at the same time as this prosecution of the former president. And it has to be said, the current front runner in the Republican primary, which is still at an early stage. So that's an extraordinary confluence of events. And there may be even more events to come, right? This isn't the only legal trouble that the former president is embroiled in. 
No, it's not. It's one of four active criminal investigations into the former president. There are investigations relating to his claims about stolen elections that came before the mob stormed Washington Capitol on January the 6th. There's an investigation into mishandling of classified information after the president left the White House. There is, to my mind, the strongest of the cases, which is his attempts to encourage election fraud in Georgia. To my mind, this case in New York in Manhattan is one of the weakest, partly because American campaign finance law is murky and sporadically enforced and partly because of the slightly unusual legal theory of the you know, misdemeanor, the falsifying business records being linked to the campaign finance violation. Again, Mr. Trump denies all wrongdoing. So given all this uncertainty around the legal case, how do you think this indictment will impact the 2024 race? My view is that when it comes to the Republican primary, this probably helps Donald Trump a bit. I think it helps him to set the terms because most of the other candidates who are running in the Trump lane of the primary are or will be effectively offering Trumpism without the crazy. And once they've all agreed that this is a witch hunt and that Donald Trump is a sort of political martyr, it becomes really hard for those candidates to run against him. So I think it helps him potentially in the Republican primary. In the general election, I don't think it helps a whole load. Presidential elections in America these days are 50-50 affairs. If he is the nominee in 2024, then I'd imagine it would be pretty close again. But I don't think it's the case that this helps him somehow. And you'd have to assume that even given all the weird things that have happened in American politics since 2016, having been indicted is not a net positive for a presidential candidate. Now, taking a step back a bit, this indictment is, as you say yourself, historic. Even Richard Nixon wasn't prosecuted. What does it say about the state of America? Do you think it's a good thing for the country? This is a really finely balanced one. It's a difficult one. I mean, on the one hand, I don't think it's a good thing to say in America, the president or the former president or the presidential candidate is above the law. And on the face of it, Donald Trump should be treated like any other citizen. If he's broken the law, then he ought to be prosecuted. But treating the president the same way that you treat any other citizen, I think, cuts both ways. The prosecutors have a lot of discretion about the prosecutions they bring. And to my mind, the combination of the fact that the law is pretty unclear here and the fact that this looks to quite a lot of people in America like a technicality means that this case is a bit weak and that it won't bring the sort of clarity that America needs. Far better, I think, if Mr. Trump is to be indicted and prosecuted, that it be for something where there's a very clear breach of the law and where the crime is something you know, more political and more consequential than paying hush money to a porn star. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, sorry. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. 
By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This year, a song by the hit musician Benson, formerly known as Buju, debuted at number one on the Apple Music Charts in Nigeria. The song has an unlikely subject. Gwagwalada, a satellite town of Nigeria's capital city of Abuja. And it's not just Gwagwalada that is having a moment. The 20th century has seen massive population growth in Africa's megacities like Lagos and Kinshasa. But since the turn of the millennium, humbler locations are taking over. Much of the population growth is now happening in villages and rural settlements. It seems to be a uniquely African form of urbanization, subtly different from anywhere else in the world. I think a lot of us has this image of urbanization as a mass movement from the countryside to the city. John McDermott is our chief Africa correspondent. So you might think of a Chinese peasant moving to an industrial factory, and that rural to urban migration is happening in Africa. But there's another thing happening as well, and that's natural population growth, i.e., more births and deaths, and how that impacts the way cities are growing. And so what effect are we seeing? So in smaller cities, natural population growth is moving them outwards, so they're absorbing erstwhile farmland. And in villages, natural population growth is so fast there that villages are turning into towns. For simplicity's sake, let's think of towns as being at least 10,000 people in population. Defined like that, the number of towns and cities in Africa more than doubled from around 3,300 in 1990 to around 7,700 in 2015, which is the last year for which we have comparable data. And if you take all those new towns that are classified as such, the average population is only around 22,000. So you have lots more small towns. And that means more Africans are living urban lives. But it also means that even if you're not living in a small town, you're much closer to one. Around half of rural Africans are living within 14 kilometers of a town. And that means you're closer to a better school, you're closer to a clinic, and you're closer to a bank. All this really matters. Okay, so there are advantages to living close to urban areas, the towns and cities, But what about the people living within them? On the whole, it's really good for them. The OECD reckons that urban wages are about twice as high as they are in rural areas. And it also seems like you get a lot of benefits from urbanisation, regardless of the size of the place you're moving to. So the benefits of moving from a village to a small town may even be greater than those from going from a small town to a city of at least a million people. But there's still a lot more that African urbanization could offer the continent. 
Like what? What more could they possibly be offering? Economists like to talk about the magic of agglomeration, which basically means the more people and firms get together, the more productive they are. But African cities aren't making the most of this agglomeration magic. That's because they are too crowded, yet at the same time, they are too sprawling. Your typical example might be Los Angeles without all the roads. So whereas in Asia and Latin America, you've seen more urban growth upwards, in Africa, there's been far too much growth outwards. The more inefficient cities are, the more expensive they are, and the more expensive they are, the more firms have to pay in order to hire people there, which in turn harms African countries that are trying to compete with Asian or Latin American firms. According to the World Bank, living costs are about a fifth to a third higher in African cities than those in other developing countries. And that's hugely important because so long as that's the case, it's going to be hard for internationally competitive firms to gain a foothold in African cities. But John, if there's all this potential, then why aren't these African cities just built closer together? A lot of these problems date back a long time. Some African countries still have colonial era planning laws on the books. But at heart, it comes down to a lack of clear property rights, which makes it hard for land and property markets to function. So many cities have a patchwork of different types of land ownership, things like traditional communal land, modern title deeds, informal claims. And when cities are growing really quickly and they're sprawling outwards, it means that you end up with towns and cities that have lots of different types of property ownership. And that can be really difficult for a planner or a developer to get one's head around. In Durban in South Africa, where I'm based, more than a third of the land is jointly administered by a trust overseen by the Zulu royal family. In the Ashanti region in Ghana, the king operates a kind of parallel land registry. And in Kampala, Uganda's capital, you have at least four different types of property rights. So builders end up only building in the places where they've got clear title deeds, which leads to massive patches of undeveloped land. And that in turn perpetuates sprawl. And have there been any attempts to remedy this? Yes, there have been. Botswana has regularized customary land rights. In Somaliland, there's quite a sophisticated property tax, so they can get more of the benefits of land development. But ultimately, African policymakers are not doing enough. And this is hugely important because it's a big risk. And the risk is that African cities are going to grow big before they grow rich, that they're not going to see the types of benefits that cities have brought to Latin America and Asia. On an individual level, urbanization is great. Many Africans have benefited from moving from a rural area to a city. But if you look at the continent as a whole, unless it really gets this urban policymaking act together, there's a real chance it's not going to maximise the huge potential that urbanisation offers. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ari. Gary Lineker is an English football legend. Vishnu Padmanabhan is a data journalist at The Economist. 
He was a fantastic striker during the 1980s and early 1990s. He also won the Golden Boot during the 1986 World Cup for scoring six goals playing for England. But he's not just famous for his exploits on the football pitch. He's perhaps now more famous as the face of the BBC's match of the day. That's the long-running football program which airs on BBC on Saturday nights during the football season and shows viewers highlights from the league's games. Here we go again. Seven games on the way from the opening day of the Premier League. But a few weeks ago, Gary Lineker tweeted criticism of the Conservative government's harsh policy against asylum seekers. In response, the BBC suspended him. The event became one of the biggest stories in Britain that week. The turmoil over the BBC's effective suspension of its highest paid presenter, Gary Lineker, has intensified in the last few hours. Several of Gary Lineker's colleagues in the commentary box said they would boycott their duties that weekend out of solidarity. Rather than scramble for replacements, the BBC reduced the typically 90-minute long programme down to a 20-minute show without any commentary. For viewers, it was a surreal viewing experience. In the huge outcry that followed, the BBC backed down and Gary Lineker, along with his commentating colleagues, returned to the show. The saga revealed much about British politics and society, but it also showed the importance of an unappreciated sporting star, the commentator. Trying to get some blocking. Gets outside now. He's got the feel blocking. Matt Snell hit him. Matt Snell, 41, had to bring Every field, from politics to pageantry, has commentators and pundits given the task of describing and analysing events. But maybe only in sport is their absence felt so strongly. The match of the day that aired that week without commentary was a perfect example. Sport is all about stories, rivalry and context. But watching the show's highlights without commentary, casual viewers would have had little idea about the importance of Everton's win against Brentford, which might have just saved the team from relegation. And even the most discerning fan would have struggled to identify the scorer of Brighton's second goal, a scruffy goal-line effort that was initially awarded as an own goal. Watching these highlight clips without the excitement and insight of the commentator's voice left the mind wandering and the action swiftly forgotten. Commentary, of course, goes back to the beginning of broadcasting. It started with radio, where commentators provided an exciting new way that fans without tickets could experience the game live. In that sense, it was an incredibly important service. And live sports commentary quickly became a popular feature of broadcasting, like this boxing match from 1927. By the 1930s, sports commentary had exploded. It made sports like baseball accessible to not just to the thousands of people who could attend the games, but to millions of people at home. Score is 2-1 in favor of the Yankees. This is the third inning. Here's the pitch to Garrigan. It's high outside. Ball one. As the 20th century progressed, sports began to be broadcast on television. But commentators continued to play an important role. Going to throw to Sauer. Sauer is hit. A fumble. 
Even today, sports can be followed through many different kinds of media, but commentators have still retained their importance. Their primary job is to still describe the action. Who has the ball or puck and what's happening in the game. But the secondary function might be even more important. And that's heightening fans' emotions during exciting passages of play by spicing up the highs. Considerating during the lows. Oh, he's put it over the bar! He's missed it! Harry Kane has landed the ball in amongst the England fans. And France celebrate! But while in fast sports like hockey and football, commentary provides a great service, in slow sports such as cricket and baseball, it can even become the main source of entertainment. For example, take the BBC's Test Match Special. That's a radio show that covers international cricket. According to a poll in 2005, the show produced Britain's favourite bit of commentary when, in 1991, Brian Johnston was floored by uncontrollable laughter after his colleague described how a batsman just couldn't quite get his leg over when trying to evade his own stumps. And he tried to step over the stumps and just flicked a bail with his, with his right hand. He and tried to do the splits over it, and unfortunately uh, the inner part of his thigh must have just removed the bail. He just, just didn't quite get his leg over. Anyhow, he... he... Beggars for goodness. He hit a four over the weekkeeper's head and he was out from the Commentators can also end up achieving a kind of immortality by providing the soundtrack to some fans' most cherished memories. When a magical play combines with just the right commentary, a clip can go down through the ages. Followers of Manchester United, for instance, go fuzzy when recalling the words of Clive Tilsley before the greatest moment in their football club's history. Trailing during the final minutes of their Champions League final in 1999, Tilsley asks with a rhetorical flourish, can Manchester United score? Manchester United score. They always score. In towards spot, cleared. Gates with a shot. They did score twice, in fact. And they won the cup. But lines don't always need rhetorical flourishes to be great. Latin American fans will associate their favorite moments with passionate screaming and a frenzy of elongated vowels. Here's Victor Hugo Morales, a Uruguayan radio commentator, describing Diego Maradona's legendary goal for Argentina against England in the World Cup quarterfinals of 1986. The next generation of commentating legends could come from new places. One refreshing development is that after years of male domination, women are now entering the commentary boxes. Social media is also producing a new type of broadcaster. But regardless of the technology that comes or how sports will be followed in the future, commentating will remain an art and a vital addition to sport. It will always be the way to convey the excitement of experiencing something live and to capture those magic moments that go down in history. As the Simpsons playfully showed back in the day when making fun of traditional football, the touch of a good commentator can make all the difference. 
Halfback passes to the center. Back to the wing. Back to the center. Center holds it. Holds it. Halfback passes to center. Back to wing. Back to center. Center holds it. Holds it. Holds it. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Chris Impey and John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alize Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kainers, Barclay Bram, and Sarah Larniuk, with extra production help this week from Maggie Kadifa and Elna Schutz. We'll all see you back here on Monday. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.